Last Lord's Day morning, I preached an introductory sermon to our new sermon series entitled, That You May Believe That Jesus Is the Christ, which will take us through the Gospel of John. And our introductory message began in John chapter 20, verse 31, where John lays out for us his own purpose statement for writing the Gospel. We don't have to guess What is John trying to do? He tells us, John chapter 20, verse 31, that his purpose is that his hearers might believe that Jesus is the Christ. These things, he says, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything in John's gospel is designated and designed and organized every story, every miracle, every teaching, every step along the way is designed for every reader to cause you to believe in Jesus. That's for believers and unbelievers. Now believing, again, we talked about it last week, we're not talking about just mere mental assent. We're not just talking about, I know the facts that John is talking about. He's talking about a heart that, that feels and loves and sees the magnitude, the glory, and the greatness of who this Christ is and is rearranging their life in light of this one. That's what belief is. They're living upon the fullness of Christ Jesus every moment of every day. And for the unbeliever who comes to John's gospel, it's that the unbeliever would see the, the witness of Jesus' works and words and for the first time in their life be caused to, to love Jesus and to believe He is who He claimed to be and to now live their lives upon the truth of Christ, repenting of their sins and making Jesus Christ all in all to them. And then for the believer to likewise see the same witness of Jesus' works and words but for their faith to deepen, to grow, for Christ to become more beautiful, more alluring, more glorious than He already is in our minds, that for the believer we would be more captivated by Christ than we presently are. John wants us to love Christ the way that he does. And there's nobody in this room, there's nobody in this world who can make that claim. John had first-hand knowledge of Jesus Christ, intimate. We might have gone so far as to say John was Jesus' best friend on earth and Jesus was John's best friend on earth. And there was an intimacy there. And so when John talks about believing in Jesus that he is the Christ, he's not talking about, I want you to agree with me on the facts. He's saying, I want your heart to be as captured by the God-man as mine is. And the truth is, anything less than that, is not true salvation. So as we begin this morning, this verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, the last of the four Gospels, we are studying that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. And that might sound crazy to you. You might be sitting there, Jake, I already believe he's the Christ. Well, amen, praise God for that. But there's room to grow. We are always tempted to reconstruct Jesus according to our wants and our desires, and that is not permitted. That's heresy. That's idolatry. We must know Christ as He is. So some in this room, maybe for the very first time, will see with the eyes of faith the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. And others, your love for Him will deepen. Last Lord's Day, we considered 
in light of John's purpose stated in John chapter 20, his purpose in the gospel is that we might believe that Christ is, or that Jesus is the Christ, within the text of the gospel of John, the Holy Spirit who inspired John to write this, has embedded certain means of grace to accomplish that. Remember, when we talk about believing in Jesus, that's not something you do. That's not something I do. That's a gift of God, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. By faith you've been saved, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The grace is a gift of God, the faith is a gift of God. And so the God who grants the gift of faith uses means to accomplish it. And he's embedded within this gospel certain means that the Holy Spirit is constantly using to awaken our hearts to the glory of Christ. And we looked at them together. There's at least four, the source of John's gospel, the signs in John's gospel, the sermons in John's gospel, and the Savior of John's gospel. The source of John's gospel is John the Apostle. And why is that so significant? Because we just hit on it. There was nobody closer to Jesus in his day than the Apostle John. He was the beloved disciple. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He had more intimate access to the Lord Jesus than any other man, woman, or child who lived in Jesus' day. He knew things about Jesus nobody else knew. If there's anybody who's going to write to us the glory, the greatness, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus Christ, hey, I'm glad to listen to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those are valid sources. I want to hear from John. This man who on the day that they heard that Jesus was not in the grave sprinted past everybody. He had to be the first one there to find out if it was true. His beloved. I want to hear from this man. What does he have to tell me about who this Jesus is? That's a means of grace. This is John talking to us. The second one is the signs. The signs is just the miracles. John talks about their signs that he's put into his message, into his book. There are miracles that have been put in. There's seven of them, seven miracles. Did Jesus do more than seven miracles in his earthly ministry? Absolutely he did. But he gives us seven of them. We'll talk about that again in just a moment. And those miracles have been handpicked, chosen, designed to tell us all that we need to know about who Christ is. The source, John, the signs, the miracles, there's seven of them that we might believe Christ is, Jesus is the Christ. The third means of grace, the sermons. How many sermons are there in John's gospel? Seven. Seven signs, seven sermons. Did Jesus preach more than seven sermons in his lifetime? Absolutely. Why seven? Because seven is a symbolic number of fullness, completion. And these seven are sufficient of the fullness of Jesus' teaching. It's not all he ever had to say, but this is what John says. This is enough for you to hear the voice of your king and know he is the Christ. The source, the seven signs, the seven, ser uh, the seven uh, sermons, and then the Savior himself. Within John's gospel, there are certain I am statements. How many of them are there? Seven. Seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am this, I am this, I am the light of the world, I am the bread. He goes on and on and on. We talked about them each a little bit last week. Why seven and all these things? Again, because of the, the Hebrew idea of the, the symbolism of the number seven. That's why when we, got, we were in Revelation, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, 
Seven cycles of visions. That's why we didn't handle them the way that's so often handled in our day chronologically, and we're trying to match world events with it. Because all throughout John's writings and also into Hebrew, Hebrew literature, seven is used as a number, not as a chronological number, but as a symbolic number of, the, of fullness, a representation of the fullness of something. And that's what we have here. John has given us a fullness of information that the believer and the unbeliever might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And before he gets started with those signs and those sermons and uh, the Savior himself, the I am sayings, he sets out in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. He says, before I get into those things, I want it to be clear in your mind who Jesus is. And in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, we have what is called the prologue. And this is John's effort before he gets into the body of his text to say, I want you to know exactly, when I say Jesus, I want you to know exactly, this is who I'm talking about. And when you're thinking about Jesus, this is who you must be thinking of. This is who the gospel is really about. And the description he's going to give us about Jesus in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is going to be a little bit strange to us. But we'll see in a moment there's a reason for it. It's interesting. In the early church, the early church, when they were considering symbols for the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were trying to, you know, as far as for teaching purposes, to come up with symbols for them. Well, in Ezekiel's prophecy, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has a vision. And in that vision, he sees four creatures. And each of those four creatures has a very distinct face. So four creatures with four different faces. One of the creatures has the face of a man. Another of the creatures in Ezekiel 1 has the face of a lion. A third one has the face of an ox. And the fourth one has the face of an eagle. And when the early church was trying to come up with symbols for pictorial symbols for the four Gospels, they went to Ezekiel's vision of those four creatures and were able to assign an appropriate symbol from those four faces to the Gospels. Now stay with me for a minute. So Matthew's Gospel, think about where Matthew's Gospel begins. Where does it begin? With the genealogies. To introduce Jesus, Matthew goes back into the Old Testament and tells the family line of Jesus. So when the early church was assigning a symbol to Matthew's Gospel, they used the man. The Ezekiel's vision of a creature with the the face of a man. They use the man as the symbol for Matthew's gospel. Mark's gospel begins with the mighty revival preaching of John the Baptist, right? That, the thundering voice of John the Baptist in the, uh, in the wilderness, the roar of the prophet, the, 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 the one who's coming before Jesus Christ. And so the early church assigned the symbol of the lion from Ezekiel's vision to Mark's gospel, symbolic of how it begins. When you come to Luke's gospel, how does Luke's gospel begin? It begins in the temple around Jerusalem. There's a lot of activity going on around there. And so the early church took the Ezekiel's vision of the ox, an animal that would be sacrificed in the temple, and assigned that to Luke's gospel. Which creature's left? The face of what? An eagle. And that was what was assigned to John's gospel. And it wasn't just because, well, it's the only one left. It has to go to that. This is what John's gospel is. 
What does an eagle do? It flies high in the sky, higher above any other bird, we're told, casting a keen gaze, and it sees with a vast panorama. And in John's gospel, he doesn't begin with the human ancestry of Jesus. He doesn't begin with John the Baptist preaching. He doesn't begin in the temple. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see in just a moment, John begins his introduction to Jesus in eternity past. Before there was anything in creation, Jesus was. And the eagle, a symbolic here, thinking of the picture of one who's hovering above all and is able to see a panorama of things beyond just the right here and right now, but able to see the fullness of it all. And John is saying, this is who Jesus is. To know who Jesus is, you've got to begin not here with his earthly life and human ancestry and the preaching of John the Baptist. You've got to see further across. You've got to go to eternity past in order to know the majesty of this one who is Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, dear church, as I look around this morning, I am well aware everyone in this room, most everyone in this room, has a broad general familiarity with Jesus of Nazareth. But familiarity is the enemy of intimate knowledge. Familiarity with facts, familiarity with, I, I know these things, I know his stories, I know his sermons, I know his miracles, I know the I am sayings, is the enemy and the death of a heartfelt knowledge, an intimate knowledge like John had of who those things revealed this one to be, and then rearranging my life in light of who he is. It is not enough to know the stories, to know the miracles, to know the sermons. We must know the man. On that day, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. But didn't we know your stories? Didn't we know your miracles? Didn't we know all these things about you? No, 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 no. I didn't know you. You didn't know me. And so this morning, John wants us to know and love and live upon Christ as personally and intimately as he did. Satan wants us to be familiar with these things. Satan is fine for us to gather each Lord's Day, go through the Gospel of John, and be familiar with these things. Hell will be full of people who were familiar with Christ, who knew Christ's miracles, who knew Christ's teachings, who knew the I am statements, but they didn't know the man. And so this morning, we turn our hearts, even as we turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we turn our hearts with an earnest plea. Do not let us be among those who are satisfied with a knowledge of these things. Show us Christ. Show us the man. Do a, a work of, of grace upon our hearts that whether we're an unbeliever and we're seeing him for the first time or maybe we're a believer and we see him but we're, we're growing deeper. Show us, show us, show us because Christ is all. I firmly believe that's the apostle's prayer as he pens this gospel for us and therefore it's our prayer for our own hearts 
as we turn our attention this morning to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You can open your Bibles this morning, and I encourage you to follow along. Keep your Bibles open so you can see the specific words that the Spirit has inspired and filled with such meaning that our hearts may be captivated with the glory of the fullness of the greatness of Jesus Christ. We begin this morning with the prologue, which again runs through verse 18, though we will kind of be walking systematically through it over the course of the next several weeks. And again, John's aim in this opening is before we get to the seven signs and the seven sermons and the seven I am sayings about Jesus, his purpose is to make sure that when he's talking about Jesus, we know who he's talking about and we are thinking John's own thoughts about who Jesus is. And so here in just the first two verses of John's gospel, he gives us three attributes of Jesus. And this is just the beginning. Let's read the text together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We come to you this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, how it reveals to us Jesus Christ, who is our great need, who is all. There is nothing more that we need than Jesus. And, Father, even in this room, Father, we may have some who are not yet true believers. And, Father, we pray that you would use this study, use your word to penetrate those hearts, to captivate souls with the beauty, the majesty, the glory of Jesus Christ. For the believing hearts who will be with us week after week, Father, we pray that you would use this text not just to reaffirm truths we think we already know, but, Father, to the depth of our soul, of our hearts, Father, we would feel the weight and the gravity of Christ's beauty, the fullness of who He is. And, Father, our hearts would be mesmerized and captivated and, 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 and just taken by Jesus Christ, uh, maybe for the first time in a long time. Father, where hearts have drifted away and have grown cold toward Jesus, may this text be used, Father, to ignite a fire for the, all that Christ is and that we would live upon Him, Father. Lord, shine the light of Christ upon our hearts today that we may see Him through the eyes of faith. Send your spirit to do what only he can do. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message this morning is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And as John is wanting to reveal to us certain truths about who Jesus is, that's that's the the broad message. Jesus is God. But within this text, there are three attributes of Jesus that reveal to us more fully who he is. And we begin, number one, with the first one, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. You can read right in the page there, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now let me just go ahead and and there's a little bit of a mystery here in verse 1, at least until you get further along into the text, specifically down to about verse 14. But I'll go ahead and spoil the mystery for you. The word that's identified here, the word is Jesus, right? In the beginning was the word 
And John will make it clear shortly, Jesus is the word that he's referring to. And we know this for at least three reasons. The first of which is again, verse 14, look down with me. And the word, same thing we see up in verse 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what he's saying there, the word that he's already revealed in verse 1 became flesh. It put on skin. It looked like us. And it dwelt among us, John says. That is, the word became a man. And this is the great doctrine that we celebrate during the Christmas season every year, the incarnation of Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 14, And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. So John is saying the Word who has put on flesh and come and dwelt among us, we've seen Him. He's come from God the Father and we know it's Him. We've seen Him with our own eyes. And again, this is a means of grace to you and I. This is not just the testimony of some future generation, you know, maybe in the third or fourth century telling us this is a man who rubbed shoulders with this man who saw him, who dwelt with him, who sat at a dinner table with him, who spent intimate time with him over the course of three years together. This is the one sent from the Father. The one to whom the Father said at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So that's the first reason that we know that the word is Jesus because in verse 14, it was just plain to all. It was plain. This is God's son, the Messiah, and we've seen him. A second reason we know this is if we keep reading in verse 1, we find what comes next. And the word was with God and the word was God. <laughs> the word is God there. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The one who took on flesh, and all that he did points to one thing. He was God, and he was Jesus. Jesus alone could have fit this criteria. And then the third reason, and I'm leaning upon the study we just fin finished in the book of Revelation. Because who wrote the book of Revelation? Same guy. Same guy right here, probably about 10 years apart between the writing of John's gospel and the writing of the book of Revelation. And his, his heart is as entranced with Jesus in the gospel of John as it was in the book of Revelation. And there in the book of Revelation, in a passing description of Jesus' second coming, John writes in Revelation chapter 19, the name by which he is called, meaning Christ coming in the second, is the word of God. That's the name by which he's called, the word of God. Christ coming, Revelation chapter 19, in his second coming, is called the word of God. John himself, he sees that this is a title of Jesus. It's a designation that he uses of Jesus. And there is no question that the word in verse 1 is Jesus. So the question then becomes, why does he call him the word? Why does he do that? Because no other author in the New Testament calls him that not a one what is John saying what does John know that maybe nobody else knows what is he intimately experienced with Jesus that no one else has that for him I want you to believe Jesus is the Christ let's begin with this he is the word what what is John why is he using that word there well there's been various theories that that um 
Some make sense, some don't. But here's the, here's the crutch of the matter. And it's very similar to what we talked about in the book of Revelation. John was a man who knew his Bible. John was a man who knew his Old Testament. John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, there's so many Old Testament allusions and so much of our difficulty in interpreting it correctly is because we don't know the Old Testament. John did. And likewise, as John is writing his gospel, he's drawing from the Old Testament, just like he did in the book of Revelation. He's drawing from the Old Testament. And frequently in the Old Testament, this concept of the word is used. For example, there's a, or there's a lot of allusions to the Old Testament in John's gospel. For instance, in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how does John 1.1 begin? In the beginning was the word. You hear the similarity? That's not an accident. That's not a, well, isn't that a neat coincidence? John 1 begins the same way Genesis 1 does. In the beginning, he's doing that intentionally. He's wanting us to think, he's wanting us in verse 1 to be thinking all the way back there. Because in order to know who Jesus is, you've got to start at least at that point moving backwards. In verse 14, John is going to say that Christ, or the Word, dwelt among us. The Greek text there is he pitched a tent among us. What does that sound like? The Old Testament tabernacle, doesn't it? Jesus pitching a tent, or, or the Lord pitching a tent where he would, his presence would dwell. See, he's, he's leaning upon the Old Testament to communicate New Testament truths about who Jesus is. In verse 17, um, John is going to present Jesus as a better Moses. He's relying upon all that we know about Moses in the Old Testament. And he's going to say Jesus is superior to that. Well, for that to mean anything, what do you have to know? You have to know how great Moses was. And not just facts. You've got to know how God was using Moses in the Old Testament. And how Moses was a Christ figure. And how what God was doing in and through Moses was a, a precursor to what God was ultimately going to do in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we'll read right through verse 17 that Jesus is a better Moses and we'll keep going on. So you've got to know what John knows. So what about this idea of the word? In the beginning was the Word. What role does the Word play in the Old Testament? Well, most obvious is that God's Word in the Old Testament reveals to us God's own will and God's own thoughts. Right? God's Word in the Old Testament reveals the mind of God, His thoughts, His will. And we find statements such as in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord said to Isaiah, the Lord said, and so Isaiah presents, these are God's thoughts. Or in passages like Isaiah 38, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. So what Isaiah is writing is not Isaiah's own thoughts. He's writing the mind of God that's been communicated to him by the Spirit of God. He's writing the thoughts of God that have been communicated to him. So God's word reveals God's mind, his will, his thoughts. God's word also comes in judgment in the Old Testament. God's word reveals his judgment. For instance, in the book of Amos, chapter 3, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. And then what follows is a word of judgment. So the word of the Lord in the Old Testament reveals the mind of God, the will of God, the thoughts of God, but also the judgments of God. 
We can go on. The, God's word in the Old Testament, it has power to heal and to deliver. Psalm 107, he, that's God, sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So the word of God is a powerful force. It goes back to something we said at the beginning of the service this morning. When we come to the word of God, you should expect you to walk away from the word of God having been messed up. If you walk away from the word of God with just a, yep, that reaffirmed what I already thought and knew and what I believed and who I am, well then... (laughs) We're not coming to the Word of God humbly enough, and we're not coming alert enough and praying for the Spirit of God to do what only He can do. Because just as in Genesis 1, God spoke and things happened, in the Bible, God has spoken, and make no mistake about it, when you come to it, things happen. If you're not being messed up by the Bible, if you're not being humbled by the Bible, if you're not being exposed by God's Word, if you're not being revealed by God's word and in the process healed and delivered by it, are we really coming to God's word? God's word reveals God's will and thoughts, his judgments. God's word heals and delivers. And God's word is effective to bring about whatever he intends. Whatever it is God in eternity past has planned, God's word is powerful to bring it about. Isaiah 55 so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. What's he saying there? When he says my word won't return empty, what is he saying? He's saying it's about to do something. And it is not an option that it won't happen. The word of God does things. It brings about whatever he intends. So the reference to the word of God in the Old Testament reveals to us something of great power, of great significance, of great influence. The Word of God creates. God spoke and things came into existence. The Word of God is huge. The Word of the Lord is a massive concept. And in all of those things, the Word of the Lord, God is disclosing something about Himself. That's what words do, right? If you're communicating with somebody, you don't just look eyeball to eyeball and with mouths closed, expect for that person to know what you're thinking and that person expect you to know what they're, you don't just make eye contact. I mean, you may do facial expressions. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm mad, I'm happy. But you don't expect that person's gonna know what you're thinking, what you're doing. You have to use words, right, to communicate. Same way, God uses words to disclose things about himself, things about his character, things about his attributes, things about his purposes. Just like we use words today to express our own emotions, our own thoughts. So words express, words reveal, words do things when they come from God himself. Now with those general concepts in mind, John 1. In the beginning was the Word. If we don't understand what John knows about his Old Testament, we'll just kind of keep going. That's a neat neat title for Jesus. I'll add that to my list. No, no, no. All the fullness of what the Word is throughout the Old Testament. Now, let's put upon one man. This man is the Word of God. Jesus 
is the fullness of God's expression of himself, of his purposes, of his ways. Jesus is the fullest and clearest revelation of God. If you want to know about God, you look to Jesus. If you have questions about who God is, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the perfect, clearest, final word of God. There will never be another. Pastor, I, I, other people hear the voice of God, hear the word of God. I never have. What's going on? Don't believe them. There has never been another word of God from Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many ways and at many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, he used different people to speak through. Moses and, and David and Solomon and Isaiah. Long ago. But in these days, what days is he talking about? Well, we know from Revelation, the church age, the time from Jesus' uh, ascension until his return. In these days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And that one, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his power. So, Jesus is not just a significant figure, not just a good religious man, not just a good teacher. He is God's clearest, most perfect, final word. There is nothing more to be said than has not already been said in Jesus Christ. It's not simply Jesus' teachings that reveal God, his sermons, his miracles. It is Jesus himself, the man. In the beginning was the Word. And that Word perfectly reveals God. We're also, again, we, we've already made reference of it. In the beginning was the Word. There's an allusion here to Genesis 1.1. It's a very profound thing that John is doing, a very simple thing, but yet at the same time a profound thing. He intends for us to read that and think, man, I've heard that before. That's Genesis 1.1 in the beginning. And that is a very profound thing he's doing because he says, in order to understand Jesus, you don't begin here. You begin at the starting point for our discussion will be Genesis 1.1. But to really know him, it goes before creation, preexistent of anything else. This is the Jesus that we're talking about here. A profound truth that he's using very simple language here. He's simply saying that when it comes to everything you see around you, there was a time where it wasn't. There was a time where there was no atoms, no molecules, no hydrogen, no oxygen. There were no planets. There were no people. There were no clouds. There was nothing. There was not even light and dark. There was nothing except God in his triune existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this Jesus I'm about to tell you about, John says, if you want to know him, you've got to start there. He is the uncreated one. The one who had no beginning. One, like that eagle who, who, who pans the panorama of all of human existence. He can see from the beginning to the end. But to know Jesus, you've got to go back beyond that. You've got to go before anything was. Jesus is the one who is 
in the beginning. Jesus himself had no beginning. And through time, he has no end. Nothing can change him. Time cannot change him. As the years go by, he doesn't age because he lives outside of time. He created it. It comes from him. Time exists through him, which means he's not bound by it. He's bigger than it. It comes from him. He doesn't age. He doesn't get older. He doesn't weaken. Some of you, as you get older, I'm guessing here, your your body becomes frail. It gets weaker. That doesn't happen with Jesus. He's before all things. He is a sure foundation. Jesus is eternal. John says to know who this Jesus is, to believe upon him and live upon him, you've got to know first and foremost, this one is eternal. The second attribute he gives us about Jesus. Jesus is united with the Father, yet distinct. (laughs) He's united with God the Father, and yet distinct. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, here again, we're bumping up against a very profound truth. They can, one of two things, be very easy to just kind of rush through, and I, I, can't, I can't fathom that, I can't think about it. Well, you better. You better. Because any view of Jesus that does not have, not that you're going to understand the, the Trinity perfectly or well or even maturely, but any understanding of Jesus that doesn't view him from this perspective is no Jesus at all. None whatsoever. And this Jesus, John tells us, this word is both intimately united with the Father, and yet he's distinct from the Father. There is this eternal union. Christ is eternal, and the Father is eternal. The triune God, the Spirit, is eternal. And yet from all eternity, they've been together and united, yet at the same time, distinct. Now, we don't want our eyes to go cross-eyed thinking about this, So let's kind of walk through some of the passages to kind of help us think through this. In Genesis chapter 1, their union and yet distinction is made clear. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, where Jesus is, is, well, yes, where Jesus is creating all things. Paul tells us Jesus is the creator. And this is what's said, let us make man in our image. So you can kind of hear the unity there. Let us make man in our image. This unity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and yet a distinction between them is one of the great, great mysteries. And listen, I used to teach children's church. I used to do youth group work. And it was important for me to do doctrinal teaching. I I want the younger generation good doctrine, good theology. And we always bumped up against when it came time for teaching on the Trinity. And man, there's some good illustrations, or at least what I thought were good illustrations out there for trying to help people understand the Trinity, how Christ is united to the Father and the Spirit, yet distinct to them. But further investigation, these are not so helpful at all, and they actually undermine the person of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, one of the things we, I used to say and we shouldn't say are things like this. The Trinity is like three states of water. You have 
you have the water, you have the, the, the solid, the liquid, and the gas. And on the surface, it seems like, well, I mean, you got one thing and it's three different things. But there's this ancient heresy called modalism, which again, that, that's not what you need to know. But the heresy is that the Trinity is not three distinct persons. And when you get right down to it, water, liquid, solid, and gas, it's, it's all really one thing. And again, that gets the unity, but the distinction there, it, it, the, the three different modes is what modalism taught. There's three different modes of, that God reveals himself in, and that's just not true. Three different things. And the same thing with the concept of, of using the uh, God is a, a father and a son and a brother to try to describe the Trinity. Again, the, the fullness of the unity and disunity of Christ breaks down there. And I'm only bringing this up to caution when we're even we're talking to others and trying to help explain the Trinity. Maybe the mystery is the better part than trying to explain it down in ways because we do kind of teeter into heresies and we didn't even know it. Other things, things like uh, the Trinity is like an egg, right? You had the shell, the white, and the yellow. And again, our good intentions, but there, there is a heresy called tritheism that ultimately that one leads to. And I'm not going to go into the details of it. We can talk about it later if you'd like. But, but my only point is there is mystery in the Trinity. There's mystery in the unity and disunity of the Godhead. And it might be best... Let the mystery stay. Let the weightiness, the fullness, the gravity of the unknown God existing as both he's with God and yet he's distinct from God. Let that be. That's the majesty of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for John's purpose this morning, that's the majesty of that the word is both with God and is God. John is an intelligent man. We know from the study of the book of Revelation, right? John's one who, he's a deep thinker. If he wanted to kind of, let's, let's dive down into this Trinity thing and let me kind of give you an illustration of it. I think John was well equipped for our study of Revelation. He could have come up with an illustration for us. But in John's own mind, every one of those exposes to, ah, it falls short. And I want you to know Christ, the fullness of him. And I want the, the, the mystery of Christ, of this aspect of it, just let that fall upon you. And the fact that you can't know it, let that humble you. And let that crumble you to the ground to worship him. As opposed to feel scholarly and that you've explained it. Does that make sense? John seemed to let it lie there. And I think so should we. But his point here is that the word is both united to God... He's with God, and he's also disunited. He's distinct in person. What a wonderful, wonderful picture here of Jesus Christ in his connection with the Father. The word was with God. The, the, the pronoun there, with, is pros. It means face-to-face. -face. He's face-to-face. -face. There's an intimacy here. He's distinct but he's intimate with God the Father. The Father and Jesus Christ enjoyed indescribable closeness with each other. There was a relationship they had with one another before anything else was formed. And yet, they're distinct in person. 
distinct in person. They're not the same. They don't morph into each other. God is not the God of the Old Testament, Christ the God of the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit the God of the church age. I've heard that too. No. All throughout eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, united together, and yet unique from one another. And I think there's comfort there for us that throughout all eternity, these members of the Trinity have enjoyed sweet fellowship with one another. They don't fight. They don't argue. They're not at war with one another. There's never pride that sets in. I know better than you, son. Or the Spirit saying, God, Father, I don't, I don't think you know what you're doing. There's always perfect harmony there. And it's interesting, in John chapter 17, as Jesus is, is closing out his, his ministry, he prays this to the Father. I made known to them, Father, your name. I, the Son, made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have for me, intimate love, intimate fellowship, that that may be in them and I in them. You hear what Jesus is praying there? That the peace, the harmony, the love that the Father has for the Son that has never been broken that that would be in us. That just as the Father loves the Son, we would love the Son. Why does Jesus pray that? Is it because it's a nice sentiment? No. Because if we don't love the Son the way the Father does, we're not true believers. That's the standard. We're created and saved to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be the likeness of Him. Jesus' prayer there is for the Father who's planted the seeds of love for Jesus that it would see it through to completion. Because if we don't love Jesus in the way that the Father does, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. If we don't love Him like that, we don't love Him. And throughout the church age, God is answering that prayer of Christ. Now, none of us are going to love Jesus perfectly the way the Father does, but there should be a growing intimacy, a growing awareness of the beauty and the majesty that Christ is our beloved, that Christ is all, that nothing compares to Him. I can't find satisfaction or joy in anything but Him. That's the Father's love for the Son. And among true believers in the church age, you do find that as the defining characteristic of a true believer. So much so that over and over and over again, God raises up generations who, to return to the true gospel and say, if you don't love Jesus like that, the work of the Spirit is not stirred in your soul. So Jesus is eternal. Number two, Jesus is united with the Father, yet distinct. And number three, Jesus is very God very God. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. And I use that term very God because that's the term that an old church document called the Nicene Creed uses when it comes to giving a statement on the person of Jesus Christ. The Creed says this, we believe 
in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now they drew that, much of the language there, from the prologue of John's Gospel. John 1, 1 through 18. And there's more to this statement. But that's the very God of very God. And what we're getting at here, what John is telling us right now, is when you think about when Jesus is doing these miracles, when Jesus is preaching, when Jesus is, is giving these seven I am statements, hear them through the lens of this is God, very God of very God. This is fully God. And this really is the high point of the, the two opening verses of uh, John chapter 1. That Jesus is God. What kind of weight should that revelation carry upon our souls? Shouldn't that change everything? Everything else that comes after this, both in the prologue and when we get to Jesus' seven uh, miracles and his seven sermons and his seven I am sayings, doesn't this reality now all of a sudden Every movement Jesus makes has now, now more gravity because this is God, very God of very God. If John is right, and he is, then now this transforms how we read the rest of John's gospel. We are reading not just the words of John. We're reading the story of God on earth. God fulfilling his promises and purposes in the Old Testament in the form of Jesus Christ. Now John's gospel is massive. This is God. If he were someone less than God, then John's gospel might make for interesting reading. We might be permitted to read and preach through it and just kind of sit through dull and kind of, ah, hold on. But the fact that this is God now says this demands us to come to this text prayerfully, earnestly, humbly, hungrily to know God as he's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? We're just getting started. He is eternal. He's united with the Father, yet distinct. And if this doesn't grab you, ask God to help you. He is God. You know, this is the first thing John says, you've got to know this about Jesus. My purpose is that you might know and believe Jesus is the Christ. And before we get to the signs and the sermons and the I am sayings, this is what you must know because this frames everything else. Jesus is God. If you don't get this, even if you know all the rest, you cannot believe savingly. You must feel the weight that this Jesus is God. 
And let's not be naive. That's not something that is believed by many people today. That's not something that many people believe. Even many people who go to church, possibly in this room, they admire Jesus. They think Jesus was a wonderful person, a great religious teacher, a great example of morality. Man, if we would just live like Jesus today, man, the world would be a better place. That was never Jesus' purpose. Many people admire Jesus as the best of men, but they do not worship him. They don't believe he's God. And therefore, they don't worship him as such. Now, here's for us. We who affirm the Nicene Creed, we who affirm that Jesus is very God of very God, can turn right around and treat Jesus in our practice as though he's not God. We can sit here on a Sunday morning and profess our confession. Jesus is God. You don't have to tell me, Pastor. I know that. He is God. And then we turn right around and treat him as not God. We can treat him as though he exists for us. As opposed to he's the eternal one and we were created for him. You see the difference? Do you do that? When you think back upon your life this past week and you think about your interaction with Jesus, have you approached Him solely because, Lord, I know You exist for me. I have this need, I come to You. You give me what I want, give me what I need. That's not worship. We can treat Jesus as if He's there just to answer our prayers. He's there to be at our beck and call when I need Him. Jesus is there to be my servant, to make things easier for me. I got things going pretty well. I'm kind of the God of my own life. Now, no one in this room is going to say that. I'm not going to say that. But in our practice, we're going to live that. I said we. In our, I'm the God of my life. But when I, when I lose control, when I prove myself not to be a very sufficient God, then, then I'll turn to Jesus who can kind of come in and do that. That's not treating him as God. Jesus treating him as a helper and nothing more. We reduce Jesus down to this manageable size. Big, just big enough to suit our needs, to fit our needs. But I don't want anything more than that. Looking unto Jesus, I mean, come on. If he's not big enough to you, then looking unto Jesus sounds dull to you. If Jesus is just a little bit bigger than you, then you hear that and it goes in one ear and out the other and it's a waste of time. Until Jesus is God, then the command of the gospel, look unto Jesus, becomes a joy, an essential, a must. There's nothing else I can do. And say it every day, say it every week, it doesn't matter, I can't get tired of hearing it because he is all. But we reduce him down to a manageable size and we become far too at ease with Jesus. We become too comfortable with Jesus. We treat him as though he's one of us. Now we live in a day today where we see devotionals being written, daily devotionals, where Jesus is your good friend. Hey, he'll be by your side right here. So I think the question I've wrestled with this week, and I'm just going to ask it out loud, am I being too hard here? 
Am I setting Jesus up on too high of a pedestal? And Jake, Jake, yes, I mean, yes, he's that, but, but he's also this down here. And my answer to that is I don't think so. And here's why. Because in our introduction last week, and I made mention of it this morning, we said John, the source of John's gospel, was probably Jesus' closest friend on earth. No one knew Jesus more intimately and personally and closer than John did. And this is why it's helpful to read John and Revelation back to back. You have this good, close, intimate friend of Jesus in John. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, you have John himself when he sees his best friend. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's not somebody who has minimized Jesus. Jesus, it's good to see you again. Oh, I've missed you so much. Let me come in. And man, let me tell you how things are going. And man, I'm, real, I'm stuck here on, on, on Patmos. And man, I'm on exile here. I got all these things here. Jesus, let, let, me, let me talk to you about my needs. All right, all right. It's good you're here. Let me talk to you about my needs. What does he do? He falls down and worships. Beloved, that's what it means to know Jesus and to believe Jesus is God. And you rearrange your thinking about Him. You rearrange how you approach Him. You rearrange all that you think He is upon His majesty. And you approach Him as God. And when we come upon His miracles, we don't walk out of here, my goodness, that was fantastic what my Jesus can do. We walk out of here on hands and knees, worshiping the one who's able to do this. When we hear his voice preach in the seven sermons, we don't walk out of here. That was a great sermon Jesus preached today. We walk out of here humbly with hearts broken. This is our God. He has spoken. And now I must live in light of this word by grace. And when Jesus says over and over, I am, I am, I am, we don't walk out of here chest puffed out. Man, my theology of Jesus is growing. We walk out of here almost like Job. You remember after God reveals himself, he kind of humbles Job. Job puts his hand over his mouth. I'm so sorry I ever opened my mouth. I didn't know anything. I thought I knew who you were. I thought I knew what you were doing. Now all I do, I repent and sackcloth and ashes and I put my hand over, I shut my mouth because I don't know anything about the God you are and I worship. That's, that's what John is bringing. That type of worship of God is what it is to believe he is the Christ. Jesus is God. When you think about Jesus, have you made him a little bit just a little bit above you. Well, then this morning, repent. Return to your king. Return to Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you know. Listen, I've sat through sermon after sermon after sermon and it couldn't be any clearer. I don't know Jesus in this way. Don't be proud. Don't be somebody who just, oh, I'll be fine. Repent. 
run to ask the Spirit of God to do what he did in John's heart, what he's done throughout the ages, to turn hearts to love Jesus the way the Father's done. However the Spirit needs to work or whatever he's doing in your heart, Jesus is God. Is he that you today, for you today? 